It is a great joy to be opening God's word with you this morning. One Sunday morning in London, five young college students went to hear the famous Charles Spurgeon preach. While they were waiting for the church to open its doors, the students were greeted by a man who said, Gentlemen, let me show you around. Would you like to see the heating plant of this church? They were not particularly interested in the tour because it was a hot summer's day. But not wishing to offend the stranger, they accepted. The young men were taken down a stairway, and upon opening a door quietly, the guide whispered, This is our heating plant. The students were surprised to see 700 people bowed in prayer, seeking a blessing on the service that was about to begin in the auditorium above. After closing the door gently, the man then introduced himself. It was none other than Charles Spurgeon. The Prince of Preachers, as Spurgeon was known, had a fruitful ministry in God's providence. And it was underpinned not only by the prayers of his own congregation, but as those close to him would attest, by Spurgeon's own prayer life. We know the importance of prayer in a Christian's life. Along with reading God's word and congregating with fellow believers in the worship of God, prayer is the most important means of grace in a believer's walk with God. So much so that in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, we are commanded to pray without ceasing. Yet, prayer is hard work. Not only do we have to guard against the weakness of our own flesh, the seductive influence of the world, and the spiritual warfare waged on us by forces of darkness, we sometimes struggle with how to pray and what to pray about. We may not be sure what the purposes in prayer are, and therefore what the essentials, essential elements of a biblical prayer should be. To that end, many have developed models and methods of prayer, based on examples from scripture that serve as a helpful tool to guide our prayers. And one of the most popular methods is called ACTS, as you've heard earlier, which is an acronym that stands for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. This method is based loosely on the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, and also the Apostle Paul's exhortation in Philippians 4, 6-7, which says, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Note that this is just a helpful framework. And even though it has biblical support, we should not dogmatically adhere to each of the elements or their order every time we pray. There are different types of prayer from scripture that we ought to learn from. This is also not a formula for effective prayer, nor does praying in such a way ensure that God hears and answers prayer. That being said, the Acts method of prayer is a helpful way to focus our prayers, as it provides a basic structure and outline to our prayers. And so starting today and continuing over the next few weeks, myself and the men that follow We'll work through each of these elements. And the first element of prayer that we will look at is adoration. The word adoration generally means to exalt, to praise, or to glorify God. In fact, the Bible says that all things were created and exist for His glory. Romans 11.36 
for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. As Christians, praising God is not only a joyful obligation, it also displays our affection and our admiration for the Lord. And it is expressed in our singing as well as our prayers. E.M. Bounds, an American author of the 20th century, who resolved to live out the command to pray without ceasing, said, Praise is so distinctly and definitely wedded to prayer, so inseparably joined that they cannot be divorced. Praise is dependent on prayer for its full volume and its sweetest melody. And when we begin our prayers with adoration for God, it helps us to take our eyes off ourselves, as we are so often tempted to do, and rightly focus them on the Lord. So how do we adore God in our prayers? By extolling God for his attributes and his acts. In other words, for who he is and what he has done. Now, there is no better book in the Bible than the Psalms to teach us about praising the Lord. And there is probably no, other be no better chapter than Psalm 103, which provides us with an expansive list of God's acts and attributes. So turn with me now to Psalm 103 as we explore this glorious psalm. Now, if you're thinking, wait, did we not just read Psalm 103 in our scripture reading this morning? You thought right. In, the, in God's providence, Pastor Peter has already read the, the chapter for us. So I won't be reading the chapter again. But let me pray for us before we look at the text. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, help us to behold wonderful truths from your word. Holy Spirit, give us understanding and insight into your word. And Lord, is, Lord help us to be conformed into the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. The author of Psalm 103 is David. But even though David wrote the psalm, the setting or context of the psalm is less certain. Some commentators have said that the psalm was written from the perspective of Israel while they were held in captivity in Babylon. Remember that it was at this time that Jerusalem lie in ruins and the temple of God destroyed and the Davidic covenant where God promised a king from the line of David would always sit on the throne in Jerusalem seems to have been revoked. And so Psalm 103 was written to assure Israel of God's mercy and forgiveness. But others have said that the psalm was written picturing jubilant Israel after they had come back to their own land post-Babylonian captivity. And so Psalm 103 was written to remind them of the grace and kindness of God. Now, no matter what the background of the psalm, what we find in it are timeless truths about God that remain true for God's people for all time and in all places. So with that in mind, Psalm 103 provides us with five eternal truths about God that should drive us to heartfelt adoration for Him, especially in the context of our prayers. And the first reason we ought to praise God is because God is good. Verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. The psalm begins by exhorting us to bless the Lord. The word for bless usually takes the meaning to endow someone with, with the power to succeed or to be prosperous, with God being the source of this power. 
This is the sense of the word when we say, God bless you. Meaning God's presence and grace would go with that person upon whom we confer the blessing. But in this passage, when it is humans that confer the blessing upon God, the word has the meaning to exalt, to praise, or to revere. And since the verb form of bless means to kneel, it also takes the meaning to adore with bended knee. So basically, David calls on his own soul to kneel, metaphorically, and offer praise and adoration for the Lord. And it is also all that is within me, meaning his innermost being. David exhorts himself to exalt God with all his emotions and faculties. The focus of this praise and exaltation is God's holy name. Now, a person's name in the Old Testament is often associated with the character of that person. So David calls on himself to adore God because of who he is and what he has done. Verse 2 continues this thought and provides the reason for exalting God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. The Hebrew word for benefit means to do good or evil, depending on the context. And so, in this context, it means the good deeds that God has accomplished for David, and by extension, for the rest of God's people. David also commands himself not to forget any of his benefits. By repeating the phrase, bless the Lord, O my soul, David recognizes the tendency of his own heart to grow cold and dull and thus become insensitive to God's blessings. So he stirs up his own soul to offer constant praise and adoration to God for his goodness. So what is the good that God has done? David enumerates God's benefits in verses 3 to 5. Verse 3, who pardons all your iniquities. God forgives sins. David knew he was a great sinner, but God expressed his goodness toward David by showing him mercy and grace. Is there a greater blessing from God? This is the greatest good that someone can receive from God, and all other blessings flow from this one blessing. Beloved, we ought to praise God daily for his forgiveness of a multitude of our sins. David will later in the psalm expand on God's forgiveness, But we see that the removal of sin is also accompanied by the removal of the consequences of sin. One of the common traits of Hebrew poetry is parallelism, where sometimes two lines of a verse communicates the same idea. So when it says, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, it is linking sin with sickness. God forgives sins, and he also heals the sickness in a person caused due to sin. Now, as we have recently learned in Matthew's Gospel, not all sickness in a person is caused by sin, but some certainly are. And God heals that sickness because the associated sin has been repented of and forgiven. Now, this does not mean that God will heal every sickness and disease from those that belong to him, like some believe today, especially those in the Word of Faith movement. However, it is a foretaste of the things to come, since sickness only exists in this world because of sin. And so, it looks forward to the day when in our glorified state, sin is no longer present within us, and consequently, all sickness will also be completely eradicated. Praise God, who heals us now, and one day will heal us of all our maladies.
Now, another benefit that David lists to highlight God's goodness is that God does not condemn, but redeem. The first part of verse 4 says, Who redeems your life from the pit. The word pit has the idea of adversity or the grave and the place beyond the grave, that is hell. And so in our passage, it communicates the idea of God's redemption and restoration and not condemnation and ultimate destruction. This is made clear because of what the second part of the verse says, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. The Hebrew word for loving kindness is hesed, which means loyal love. And compassion means mercy. These are both expressions of God's goodness. God's love for his people Israel was bound by the unconditional and unilateral covenant he made with Abraham. So even though Israel's sin, sins caused them to be exiled from the land and they appeared to be without hope, God still remembers his covenant promises. And so he will surround them with his steadfast love and mercy instead of judgment. Let us praise the Lord for his sacrificial love and tender mercies, which in the new covenant was displayed for us in the life, death, and resurrection of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, thereby accomplishing redemption for guilty sinners like us. David provides one more benefit from God in verse 5, who satisfies your ears with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. God prospers people in such a way that they gain youthful vigor like an eagle. Now the eagle is a majestic bird. They fly at great heights and with tremendous speed. The average lifespan of an eagle is 14 to 35 years, which is particularly long when compared to other species of birds. They are one of the largest birds of prey and therefore have very few predators. Eagles are a symbol of power, of freedom and greatness. So the Lord essentially says that he will physically sustain and provide for those in Israel such that even if one is at a stage, late stage of life, they will be given renewed strength like that of an eagle. God is worthy of our exaltation because of his many provisions and physical sustenance. So what applications can we draw from this first section? Just like David, we are prone to forget the goodness of God Are we not? How easily we forget the many blessings that God bestows on us every single day of our lives. But God does not take such forgetfulness lightly. We see in 2 Chronicles 32, where it says that the Lord listened to King Hezekiah's prayer and delivered Israel from Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and his mighty army by sending an angel who killed 185,000 Assyrians in a single night. It goes on to say that the Lord then protected Israel from many enemies and prospered King Hezekiah, and he was exalted among the nations. But in verse 25 of chapter 32, it says, But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit, the same word in our passage, because his heart was proud. Hezekiah did not bless God for his goodness toward him, and thereby sinned against God. Beloved, Let us guard against absent-mindedness and indifference to God's blessings. Let us give him the praise and adoration he deserves for his goodness toward us. It may be healing from the mildest sickness or the victory God gave us over a sin that she used to make us stumble so easily. 
It may be God's daily provisions to sustain us or the freedoms that we enjoy living in a democracy. Let us not take for granted God's earthly blessings toward us, but return praise for every good gift which is bestowed on us by our Heavenly Father. James 1.17 The Lord is the standard of all good, and He is the source of all good. So as we approach God in prayer, and as we recognize and acknowledge His goodness, our praises will not be half-hearted, but from the depths of our soul, like the psalmist. As Psalm 107 verse 1 reminds us, let us give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Let's move on to the second reason why we ought to praise God in our prayers. Because He is righteous. Verse 6. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. The Lord performs righteous deeds, meaning the Lord acts righteously or works righteousness. Now, righteousness is an attribute of God. One theologian defines it as, God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. And the second part of the verse says that he also performs judgments for all who are oppressed. That is, he executes justice for those who are wronged. Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. He rules with righteousness and does not tolerate injustice. He is concerned about law and order, and he will ultimately avenge the unrighteous. So who are the ones who were oppressed, and who are the oppressors? In context, it was Israel who was oppressed, whom the Lord delivered from their bondage under the Egyptians, their oppressors. The next couple of verses make that clear. Look at verse 7. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. His ways mean his character and the manner in which he relates to man. And his acts mean his actions and deeds. So when did God do this? When God heard the cry of his people in Egypt and delivered them from their slavery, he executed justice for them. God first raised up Moses the prophet, whom he used to rescue his people. Then God revealed himself to Moses and also performed signs and wonders in the sight of the people of Israel, beginning at the Exodus and into the wilderness years. It was at this time God gave Moses intimate knowledge of who he is, in a way he had not revealed himself to any man until then. Read about this in verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. This is almost a word-for-word quote from Exodus 34.6. So turn with me there now so that we can better understand the context. We see in chapter 32 that Israel, after having been delivered from Egypt, sinned greatly by worshipping a golden calf. Moses then interceded on behalf of Israel, and the Lord relented from the severe judgment he had planned for Israel. Moses then asked God for a greater revelation of him, of his love and mercy. Look at chapter 33, verse 13. Now therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. Moses, who was highly regarded by the Lord, was granted this request. 
And so in chapter 34, verses 6 to 7, we find God giving his self-revelation to Moses. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. The Lord is compassionate. He is merciful. The psalmist will go on to expand on this attribute of God in verse 11. And he is also gracious, meaning he will display favor to his people, both spiritually and materially. The one negative here is that God God is slow to anger. Because of Israel's sin, God is full of righteous indignation or wrath toward them. But he is slow in executing his wrath. Why? Because he is abounding in loving kindness. Loving kindness or hesed as we saw earlier is God's loyal love toward those who are in covenant with him. The Israelites. But they will experience God's curses or his fatherly chastisement for their disobedience to the laws of the covenant which was stipulated in the Mosaic law. And because of Israel's repeated unfaithfulness, God acted righteously by exiling them from the land, as he promised he would. Deuteronomy 28.63 says, It shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you, and you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. But he will not chasten them forever. Verse 9. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Strive means to chide, contend, or to accuse. God will not accuse Israel for that forever, even though he has a legitimate case for doing so. And to say it another way, he will not keep his anger forever. As soon as Israel repents and turns back to him, he will forgive them. Because he is righteous and he acts in accordance with his character and his covenant promises. And since he is righteous, he is patient in pouring out his wrath. And he is also patient in executing his justice. Verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Both the lines of this verse are talking about the same thing. And that is, God has not treated Israel as their sins deserve. Israel, beginning with their idolatry at Mount Sinai, and for all the times they were unfaithful sins, deserve to be punished under God's wrath. They deserve to die in the same way that Adam deserved to die after eating the fruit from the forbidden tree. And just like Adam and Israel, we deserve to die. God's righteousness demands that he gives guilty sinners what their sins deserve, which is death and condemnation. But praise God for his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who became our substitute and took upon himself the penalty for sin, thereby appeasing the wrath of God. Romans 3.23-26 to says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God publicly displayed publicly 
as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The basis of God's love, mercy and grace in verse 8 is God's righteousness manifested through our Lord Jesus. Jesus lovingly gives of himself as a sacrifice, displays compassion toward lost sinners and graciously grants them salvation from sin because he is righteous. Beloved, let us bless the Lord for his righteousness. So we have seen that God is worthy to be praised in our prayers because he is good and righteous. And now, the third eternal truth about God is that he is merciful. Verse 11, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. Hesed or loving kindness can also mean God's mercy. Because in context, God does not punish Israel according to her sins, but instead shows them mercy, which is nothing but another aspect of God's love. And how vast is God's mercy? It is as high as the heavens are above the earth. Just like no one can measure the distance between the heavens and the earth, so it is with God's mercy. It is measureless or limitless. But God's mercy is not indiscriminate. It is only for those who fear him. That is, to those who obey him and are faithful to his commands. And because God is merciful, he forgives sins. Verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Even though the transgressions of his people were many, God has forgiven them and removed it far from him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he has separated them from their sins. Not only is there a great distance between the east and the west, no one knows the exact points where they end and begin. And these points will never meet. It is an impossibility. In the same way, it is impossible for our sins to be associated with us or to bear our name again once God has removed them from us. God's forgiveness is absolute. He will never again remember or bring up our sins. Beloved, is there a more comforting thought in scripture? Micah 7, 18-19 says, Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will, cast, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And Jeremiah 31, 34. For I will forgive their iniquities and will remember their sins no more. There is no greater blessing than to know that which separates us from God, God himself has removed. Moving on to verse 13. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. God is a father to those who have reverence or respect and honor for him. They are, his, they are his children that seek to please and obey their father. And who among us has not felt mercy or compassion when we see weakness in our own children? 
Who among us has not had pity on our children when they experience pain and are suffering? Well, if we who are evil and sinful know how to show compassion, how much more will our Heavenly Father show us mercy? And the fact that the verb is in a present tense indicates that God is always showing mercy to his children. Let us, even for a second, not entertain the thought that we have no need of God's mercy. Even in our best moments, we are constantly in need of our Father's compassion. Why? Because we are weak. Look at verse 14. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. God has compassion on us because he knows our frame, that is our form. As our creator, God knows that we are what we are made of, and that is dust. We are told that the first man, Adam, from whom the rest of humanity came, was created by God, literally from the dust of the ground. Genesis 2.7 And in Genesis 3.19, after the fall of Adam, God says, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the, to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God, our maker, pities us because of our frailty. As a tender-hearted father, he recognizes the weaknesses of his children and shows us mercy. Even though our sins against him are many, God does not condemn us like we deserve, but is gentle toward us. And again, God's mercy is manifested through his son Jesus. Hebrews 2, 17-18 Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. By Christ taking on human form, and identifying with us, he can relate with his people, especially with their weaknesses. Hebrews 4, 15-16 further says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we sin, especially with those sins that so easily entangle us, we ought to run to Christ. We might be tempted to think that we have exhausted God's mercies, because how much does he forgive the same sins over and over again? The sin we committed yesterday, that we sincerely confessed and repented of, we have once again fallen for today. Is there any hope for us? Let us be reminded of Lamentations 3, 22-23, which says, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. We might be crushed by the weight and guilt of our sins, but we do not despair, but because our hope is not in ourselves, but in Jesus, our merciful High Priest. He will strengthen us and help us if we ask. The words of the hymn, His mercy is more, so clearly captures this attribute of God. Verse 1 of the hymn says, What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient all-knowing, he counts not their sum. 
thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And verse 2, what patience would wait as we constantly roam. What father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. When we come to God in prayer, let us remember the inexhaustible mercies of the Lord toward his children and praise him for it. Our God is not only eternally compassionate, but he is also faithful to his children, which is the fourth reason to adore the Lord in our prayers. Verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. Grass, as we know, is short-lived. This is especially true in the dry and arid Middle Eastern climatic conditions of Israel. Grass appears one day and dries up the next. And just like grass, man's days here on earth are few. Sure, some may live and flourish as a flower, but their bloom does not last long either. They live accomplished lives and leave their mark on the world through their many exploits, but their memories will be short-lived. Because, verse 16, when the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. When the hot desert wind in summer blows over the land of Israel for a few days, both the grass and the blooming flower withers and fades. And just like no one would be able to tell where a particular grass or flower stood in the field, the place where a human lived will soon forget they ever existed. The best illustration of this is at a funeral and hearing the topics of conversation of those in attendance. They have already moved on. Job 14.2 says, A man's life lasts as long as a shadow. And James 4.14 compares a man's life to a vapor, like a puff of smoke or one single breath. Such is the brevity of life. And over against the fleeting nature of human existence, God displays his faithfulness to those that belong to him. Verse 17. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. The loyal, steadfast love of the Lord for his people is from everlasting to everlasting. God didn't begin loving us the day we were born again or the day we were born into this world, or even at the moment we were conceived in our mother's womb. God began loving his people from eternity past, before the foundation of the world, and continues loving them into eternity future. Because of God's omniscience and his foreknowledge, he knows all things. He knows about all events and people, before they happen or exist. Before God created anything, he set apart a people to lavish his love upon. Because he knew us, he chose us. And then he calls us, saves us, sanctifies us, and ultimately glorifies us. Romans 8, 29. And he does all this because of his love for us. Gerhardus Voss, a Dutch-American theologian of the 20th century, said, The best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. Beloved of God, there has never been a time where God has not loved us, and there never will be. Never. Let us banish all thoughts of doubt that creep into our minds 
questioning the love of God for us. When we go through the trials and tribulations of life, let us remind ourselves of his eternal love for us and exalt him for it. We can pray with great confidence, knowing that he who has known us from before the foundation of the world is faithful and will sustain us through the momentary afflictions of life and lead us into everlasting life. Romans 8.35 reads, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And down to verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God is worthy of our adoration because of his faithfulness to love his people. Charles Spurgeon once said, Everlasting love shall be the pillow on which I rest my head tonight. Let it be the pillow on which we rest our heads all the days of our life. We could dwell on this thought for longer, but we must move on. Notice that this love is once again for those who fear him. Only those who are obedient to God can draw comfort from the fact that God's eternal love means that even though life here on earth is short and filled with trouble, it has meaning and purpose. In addition to his love, God is also faithful to bestow his righteousness on his children. Note that the name of God that the psalmist uses to call upon the Lord is Yahweh. God's personal covenant-keeping name. Every time God's name is used in the psalm, it is Yahweh. And it is used to remind the people of God's faithfulness to his covenant. But he also expects faithfulness from his people. The Lord's loving kindness and righteousness is only for those in Israel who are in covenant relationship with him and are faithful to his commands. Because verse 18 says, To those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. God builds a relationship with us, with the righteous, and He promises promises to love, show mercy, and be faithful to children's children. That is generation after generation. Now, this does not mean that God's love and mercy is earned by keeping the laws of the covenant, but rather because one has experienced God's steadfast love and righteousness, they obey the law out of reverence for the Lord, so as to not displease Him. This is true of us in the new covenant as well. We don't obey God to merit a right standing with him. It is because we have obtained a right standing with God through Jesus that we long to love and please him. And our love for God is expressed in our obedience to him. We now come to the fifth reason why why we ought to adore God in our prayers. Because he is sovereign. Verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. The Lord has established his throne, meaning prepared or fixed his throne. And where has he done this? In the heavens, which is generally used to refer to the abode of God, where he dwells. Yahweh is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He does not derive his power from another, nor does he delegate it, for he is the only potentate. And the sovereign king has a universal kingdom, which is the whole cosmos, the entire created realm. 
He is the supreme ruler of the universe. There is no place that exists outside of his dominion. No place where his rule and authority are not exercised. No one can thwart his plans and he does as he pleases. Isaiah 46.10 He carries out his will and accomplishes his purposes daily. The psalmist, after expounding on the great acts and attributes of God up till this point, for which he himself praised God in verses 1-5 to and called all Israel to praise God in verses 6-19, to now calls on all creation to join in adoration for him. It is as though the praises of the psalmist and all Israel were insufficient to exalt and magnify God, that he now summons the rest of creation to do the same. First, he calls upon the angels, the ones who dwell with God in the heavens. Verse 20. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. David is addressing the righteous angels here, that is, those who belong to God and not fallen ones, who are incapable of exalting God. He then describes the angels. They are the mighty ones, or warriors of strength. We have seen earlier the might of one angel who killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in, one, in just one night. These angels obey the commands of the king who sits on the throne to accomplish his purposes in this world. And they are loyal to Yahweh. It is to these angels that David calls on to praise and adore the Lord. These holy angels are morally pure and have not been stained by sin. They are perfect just as they were on the day they were created and are in fact a model in exalting and praising the Lord. We read in Revelation 4 of the worship of the cherubim, those angels who serve God in his presence. Revelation 4.8 says, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And we also read in Revelation 5.11-12, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Let us learn the adoration of the Lord from these mighty angels. Moving on to verse 21. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Now the word hosts could refer to angels or it could refer to heavenly bodies, that is the sun, moon and stars. I am inclined to take the latter meaning because of a couple of reasons. First, whenever the term refers to heavenly bodies, it is singular, which is the case in our passage. And the second reason is that it does not make sense for David to be speaking of the angels once again, having just addressed them in the previous verse. So in what way do these heavenly bodies serve God and do his will? Well, the sun, moon and stars were created for specific reasons and they serve God when they accomplish their God-given purposes. Genesis 1, 14-16 says, Then the Lord said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the, light from the, from the, separate the day from the night and let them be for seasons, for signs and for seasons and for, hev- for days and years. 
and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. We also read in Nehemiah 9 to 6, sorry, 9 verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. And finally, Psalm 19, 1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. The heavenly bodies were created to be in His service, and they too give praise and glory to God. And finally, verse 22 of our passage. Bless the Lord, all you works of His, in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All your works of his refers to the rest of creation, wherever his dominion extends to, which is the whole universe. All things exist to give glory to their creator. They were made for this specific purpose. And the psalmist, recognizing his own obligation, ends as he began by commanding his own soul to bless the Lord. Scripture testifies to the fact that God not only, not only reigns in the heavens, but he is also the sovereign ruler and in control of all things here on earth. Psalms 50 verse 10 says that he owns every animal. He controls the forces of nature. Psalm 135, 135.5-7 Isaiah 40.15 says that the Lord reigns over the nations. And according to Daniel 2.21 He raises up presidents and prime ministers and he also brings them down. He preserves all human beings. Acts 17.28 and he sustains all things in creation. Colossians 1.17 God is also sovereign over salvation. Ephesians 1.4 And he allows the suffering of believers. 1 Peter 3.17 And he orchestrates all things in our life for our eternal good. Romans 8.28 What joy and comfort for the believer to know that because God is the omnipotent ruler of the universe, we have nothing to fear and that we are safe in the everlasting arms of our Heavenly Father. As recipients of such great blessings from God, let us be zealous to praise the Sovereign Lord. We saw earlier that God created all things in this universe for His glory and the most privilege of all His creation is us, His redeemed people. With all that God has done for us, how can we not praise Him? So as we approach God in prayer, let us remember the goodness of God, the righteousness of God, the mercy of God, the faithfulness of God, and the sovereignty of God, that we may bless His holy name. Let's pray. Lord, there is none like you, none above you, none beside you. You alone are God, the all-powerful one, all-knowing and supremely good. And as you have revealed in your word, Lord, you are worthy, worthy of all praise and worship and adoration. 
You have indeed created all things for your good pleasure, that they may bring you glory. So help us as your people to love you, to magnify you, to honor you and to please you in all that we do. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.